Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, a podcast for and about the people of the Nashville restaurant scene. Now here's your host, the CEO of New Light Hospitality Solutions, Brandon Still. Hello, Music City, and welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. Today we have a special edition of Nashville Restaurant Radio, where myself, Brandon Still, who is typically your host, am going to be giving my hosting uh, duties away to Adam Flieger, who has um, won the bidding contest in the Ask Chefs Anything charity event. Uh, he will be interviewing Carl Meyer today. Carl is the co-founder and president at Black Abbey Brewery. So we are, we are excited to partner with Ask Anything, Ask Chefs Anything, to do this, we are going to be donating all of our proceeds today from our advertisers to the Ask Chefs Anything Fund, which helps restaurant workers who are uh, in food insecure situations that are not working. It's, it's a benefit to help restaurant workers. So we're very excited um, to be part of this. To start off, we will talk today about Springer Mountain Farms Chicken. Springer Mountain Farms Chicken is a, an industry leader in what they're doing with the humane treatment and quality of life of their chickens. They take extra steps to ensure the health and welfare of their chickens. They're raised in comfortable houses with an unlimited supply of clean water and fresh feed along with plenty of fresh air and room to roam, allowing them to live normal life without the threat of predators, harm from the elements or diseases from other flocks of birds as they'd be subjected to if they were raised outdoors. All of their practices and procedures are certified by the American Humane Association as being the most humane possible. This is verified by regular independent audits of all farms and facilities by the AHA, the oldest and most trusted advocate of animal welfare in the country. Springer Mountain Farms Chicken was the first brand of chicken in the world to be American Humane certified. Want to learn more? Check them out at springermountainfarms.com. Um, all this information is there. Join the flock, sign up, put your email in, and get the weekly emails with recipes and up-to-dates on their farmers. We also want to talk today about Foe and Bo, F-O-H and B-O-H.com. We are in a time right now where there's a lot of people out there that need jobs. A lot of people are out. We The government hasn't come up with a new stimulus plan. And if you need a restaurant job, Foe and Bo is the place to be. Go on and create a profile for yourself. Right now, it is free. There's over 200 restaurants looking for employees just like you. If you are an employer... Uh, you can go up and sign on to hire more than 2,500 candidates are available right now at foeandbow.com. And it is 100% free through the month of August. You've got 11 days left to get this done. Go in, sign up, hire as many people as you want for the next 11 days. So I want to say a big thank you to Springer Mountain Farms Chicken and foeandbow.com for sponsoring this special edition of Nashville Restaurant Radio. We're going to jump in. Right now, pick it up with Adam Flieger. All right. Hello, Music City, and thank you, Brandon. Um, I'm excited to be here today, uh, not only for, for a really great cause and, and raising some money for charity, but also to talk to, to Carl Ma uh, Meyer um, at the Black Abbey Brewery. And um, just a quick little, little snippet. Um, the, one of the reasons why I jumped in on this is... Um, with all the really fantastic local uh, breweries and restaurants, the current pandemic is is really starting to, uh, or has hurt a lot of them. And 
um, anytime that you can help out a local a local spot like this, it's, it's great. Um, the other side of it is uh, I'm a patron and a mug club member at, at Black Abbey Brewery. And so it uh, holds a special place in, in my heart. And anytime you get a chance to, to talk to Carl a little on a little deeper level, um, I'm all for it. So thank you, Brandon and Carl. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us this morning. I like having uh, I like having the inside uh, line. I feel less like uh, less likely you're gonna drag me into some sort of horror. Uh, why Why do you do things this way? Why'd you discontinue <laughs> that? You know. Well, uh, maybe you don't know me that well. Then. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here we come. But uh, so, you know, just kind of kind of first things first, um, how are, are you doing? How's, how's the brewery doing? And, and not, on, not on a service level, like how are you doing great this morning? Um, but I, I know the pandemic's been really tough. So how are things holding up emotionally, psychologically for you guys, uh, for your staff members? Um, that's a really hard question. And I think the, the ultimate answer is, uh, it's the same thing we've said from the very beginning, which is we just take this day by day. Um, when, you know, when everything started unraveling the beginning of March, uh, you know, we didn't know how this was going to affect us, you know, what was going to happen. And so uh, I guess we ended up furloughing the majority of our staff the 16th. Uh, well, I take that back, the 14th, because this uh, St. Patrick's Day was a s Monday or Tuesday this year. It was right before St. Patrick's Day. And uh, at that point, we didn't have any choice. The, all the bars and restaurants were closed. Our tap room was closed. Uh, our distributors stopped buying beer, uh, at least keg beer. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty as it related to uh, you know, what they had in inventory and when it was going to be out of date. and uh, so everybody did the, uh, the the safe thing, which was to uh, just put put the brakes on, stop, full stop, as uh, as Captain Kirk would say, full stop. <laughs> um, and and so um, I think uh, you know every day when you know every day when I sit down with Isaiah, who does sales for us, uh, we ask each other this singular question, what fresh hell are we going to be faced with today? <laughs> and every day it's something new. And, and it seems like, you know, some days it's not as bad as it could be. And other days it's way worse than it has any, any real reason to be. Um, but it uh, is to answer your question, how are we holding up? I mean, we're holding up, we're still here. Uh, the, the mental stress is significant. I think even for, um, certainly for, you know, the ownership group and our investors, but also for, uh, you know, our brewers, our salespeople, you know, Isaiah right now can't really, like, where do you go? What accounts do you call on? Who's open? Who's not open? Right. When you go to a place that is open, a lot of times they're short staffed, uh, you know, like, uh, like Brandon was saying about front of house, back of house, you know, there's a lot of people that are looking for work. And part of that is when you say you can be open at whether it's 25 people or 75% or 25 or 50% capacity, whatever it is, um, that a lot of times it's the, you know, the salaried folks, the managers who are still there, who are on the floor, filling those holes, right. uh, which are the people that I would otherwise be talking to, to try to sell beer to. 
yeah, doing doing two or three uh, different jobs, wearing multiple hats, just to try to stretch themselves uh, thin uh, at the time. But yeah. uh, one of the things that I noticed um, uh, in the kind of email updates that you send out to people who visited the brewery, signed up for for uh, the newsletter, uh, members, and so on, uh, for any of the furloughed staff, Carl has included. Um, some Venmo handles and, and things like that. So we can, people can get a hold of them. They can help them out. Uh, I know a lot of them are struggling as well. And I think that's been a really nice touch. Um, being in, you know, a, a smaller tap room and so on, um, the people who visit get to know, especially the front of house people really, really well. And so, yeah. um, you know, just being able to reach out and make sure they're okay has been, has been a, a blessing as well. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's a, Great to hear that you guys are, are making it day to day. And I, I think a lot of people are in the same boat at this point in time. So, yeah. And, um, you know, we're a really small family. Uh, I think the um, we're very grateful to have people who've been here as long as they have. Um, ben, who's our lead brewer, and Isaiah, who's in charge of sales for us, have both been here since before we were a brewery. Uh, they <clears> volunteered <throat> their time and helped glue glycol pipe together and uh, you know, seal the brew deck floor before there was equipment in there. And so we're really grateful to have long-term, long-tenured staff. And um, it really does feel like a family. And that, that's been the worst part of this whole thing is when you have to say, well, some of the family can't come to dinner because we don't, you know, right. because we got to, th there's nothing for them to do. Um, yeah. But uh, thank you for asking. I, I feel, I think I can, effectively speak on behalf of all of them to say we're doing okay but you know we certainly appreciate the uh the goodwill and uh positive uh vibes yeah yeah absolutely all right um let's shift uh, shift gears a little bit here so um i know that you went to uh to cornell and yes. um I'm, I'm from upstate new york originally only a few few miles down the road from cornell and uh, just kind of digging into your background a bit here. You majored in communications, if I'm not, yeah. if I'm not, uh, if I'm correct, correct. there. Uh -huh. uh, you worked, you worked for a while in a few nonprofit organizations yeah. and then decided uh, you liked profit and switched, switched completely and went into banking. Um, and sort of. yes. <laughs> uh, now, now you uh, co-own and co-founded a brewery. So can you yep. talk a little bit about this, this winding path? Like how, how did you get into beer? What pulled you into beer from, from, uh, from nonprofit and, and banking? Yep. So uh, while I was at Cornell as an undergrad, Cornell has uh, one of the biggest uh, well-regarded uh, hotel schools in the country. And so part of that hotel school program, they offer a class, a senior level class that's available to everyone on campus called Introduction to Wine and Spirits. And so uh, everybody on campus calls it wines uh, and all the seniors take it, uh, basically. And, you know, obviously there's some people that don't care, but, you know, a Wednesday afternoon where you can drink wine in class sounds pretty dope. So uh, virtually all the seniors take it and my birthday is in February, so I turned 21 before a lot of my friends did. So I took uh, I took that class first semester, whereas a lot of them took it second semester. So uh, the first semester, because of uh, the way people's birthdays lay out, oftentimes is the smaller uh, of the two semesters in terms of um, the student uh, population, right? So they got to do sometimes cooler 
things. We got better wine, we got uh, better lecturers because uh, the class size was smaller. So during that, I'm, and I promise I'm getting somewhere with this. <laughs> um, so I took that class uh, first semester of my senior year and like Robert Mondavi came and talked, like it was ridiculous the quality of lecturer that was coming through this class. Uh, but they did a class on beer and uh, Michael Jackson, uh, the world's foremost beer critic, uh, was one of the lecturers. And, you know, I've got no idea. We're drinking like pitchers of Killians all the time. Like this is, you know, I had no idea who this guy was. We were all laughing like, hee hee, Michael Jackson, you know, maybe Macaulay Culkin will be here. And so we, so anyway, this guy shows up and uh, I don't know how much you know about Michael Jackson, uh, but he looks he looked like a hobbit, uh, just big, bushy, curly hair and a crazy curly beard and great big glasses. I talk with a very English accent and very, very, very sort of like this. And uh, so he comes in to do his lecture and he's, I have two refrigerators in my house, one for food, the other for beer. And the, <laughs> And I feel like this was probably a lie. He probably had six or seven refrigerators dedicated to beer. Um, but during the course of this class, we tried Celis White. We tried Brooklyn Lager and Brooklyn Brown. Uh, we tried uh, Sam Smith's Taddy Porter. Uh, and at this, this is the point where uh, we're like, wow, me and my buddies, uh, like, wow, beer can be more than this, right? Beer could be more than just how many natty lights can I slam in an afternoon? Uh, and so uh, that really sort of piqued my interest in beer. I had a buddy of mine, uh, one of our housemates, who was a biochem major. And so the two of us were like, I bet we could probably make beer. We should try making beer. And so we got uh, we we got uh, Charlie Papazian's book, uh, The New Complete Guide to Home Brewing, and started reading it because, you know, that's the kind of nerds we are. And we, you know, and, I'm, this is 93, 94. So okay. access to uh, homebrew ingredients is not, they're not as readily available as they became later yeah. in through the 2000s. So kind of before you know, we're that trying to, big boom, the big boom. Yeah, so like we're trying to piece year. it together, you know, but that that's where I developed an interest in beer. And then even after college, uh, kind of stayed with the homebrew. Uh, you know, I really liked doing it. It was a lot of fun. Um, it, you know, every batch of beer probably costs the same as a round of golf, but then I got it around for a little while and you can drink it. And as opposed to just being frustrated, plowing balls into the woods. So, <laughs> uh, so I just kind of got interested in it. Uh, first job out of college, uh, I worked in Manhattan. I worked for St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, as part of their uh, preservation fundraising uh, department. And then from there, I, my, we lived in Connecticut. My wife had a job in Stanford, Connecticut with like a two mile commute. And I was riding a train uh, an hour and a half each way into Manhattan every day. Um, and so after working there for a little while, got kind of burned out on the commute, went to work for United Way in White Plains, uh, New York, uh, which was significantly closer uh, to where I lived. And then my wife wanted to get a master's in uh, nursing. Her background is in industrial uh, labor relations. So uh, she, her, uh, degree sort of leading her towards law school and uh she was working for a big hr consulting firm in connecticut and uh really wanted to get involved in 
something different. So she took a bunch of classes at UNC and then applied for and uh, uh, was admitted to Vanderbilt School of Nursing. So we moved to Nashville in 99 so that she could go there. I transferred within the United Way system. Uh, so I worked for United Way in, in Westchester County and then we moved here and worked United Way in Davidson. One of the accounts that I handled, I handled the, the finance and insurance real estate division. Uh, so I worked at AmSouth Bank doing their United Way campaign. Uh, at that time, they had a guy down in Florida, AmSouth did, uh, who had been very successful in building a division that specifically provided banking services to not-for-profit organizations. And uh, so successful, in fact, that the bank decided they were going to roll that out in a lot of their footprints. And uh, Devan Ard, who was the president of the bank of AmSouth at the time, uh, recruited me from United Way because I had all those nonprofit relationships. And so I left United Way to go to work for the bank, uh, partially because, right, you figure there's better money in banking than there is in, in working in nonprofit, but, but also as a, uh, an opportunity for me to continue those relationships within the nonprofit world uh, and provide service to somebody who's not getting serviced. Uh, nonprofits don't really borrow money, uh, but a lot of money flows through nonprofits. And so they require specific and sometimes different banking services than a, you know, a doctor's office or something would. So that's how I got to work for AmSouth. And then uh, AmSouth, AmSouth was purchased by Regions. And so I left and went to Cumberland Bank. And then Cumberland Bank was purchased by Green Bank out of Greenville, Tennessee. And so in the span of a year, I'm, I moved banks once, but had four different business cards, right? So, um, and, and all the while thinking, Hey, what, what am I doing? Like, I don't really like this that much. And B, uh, homebrewing the whole while. And so in 2008, during the, uh, you know, the previously biggest recession, uh, the country had ever seen, my wife was like, all right, look, you're like you're brewing all the time. You're buying all this equipment. You've got all this stuff in the garage. You, you know, we've got a family and kids like either quit it or do something with it. And so uh, me and a couple of buddies through uh, that I knew through uh, Music City Brewers and the Antioch Spud Suckers, which are the home brewer clubs that I was involved in here in town, uh, specifically John Owen, uh, sat down and started writing a business plan. So that was 2008. Uh, we incorporated in 2011, uh, started, uh, you know, raising money uh, to uh, buy the equipment and open the brewery. And then we opened in uh, September of 2013. So long answer to your short question, yeah. but uh, yeah. that, that sort of takes you through the, the convoluted uh, way that I got here. Yeah. So as as you were working with with uh, John and, and some of the other investors getting started up, um, where does the where does the the Black Abbey name come from? What's the story behind that? So when uh, when we first started trying to come up with um, you know brand identity for the brewery, our our original thought was Murfreesboro is an underserved uh, community. There's a big college there, largest one in the state. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no breweries. Let's just go down there and make. Uh, yellow beer and sell it to college kids, you know? And, and so while we were test batching uh, and, you know, we got the laundry list, the big legal pad with the pros and cons of different names. 
Uh, so we're trying to come up with names. We're test batching uh, beers like uh, Crossroads, which is our summer ale. This Crossroads was one of the that was going to be our flagship beer for this yellow beer in Murfreesboro idea. Um, but all the while we're brewing like I'm brewing doubles and quads and triples and you know we like Belgian beer and so you know when you're brewing you might as well get a brew one I might as well brew two and and so uh, at some point we realized you know maybe we should be more true to ourselves um, and brew the things that we like rather than trying to do something that we felt wasn't entirely authentic which is you know creating you know trying to piggyback onto something that already exists there's plenty of breweries uh, many of them very very large uh that are making you know macro lager so we uh at that point we decided to sort of shift gears and to to take on a more european style brand uh at the time the breweries in town uh were yazoo uh then the brew pubs blackstone bosco's uh jackalope had just opened fat bottom had just opened and so uh, Mayday had just opened in Murfreesboro. So I mean, a number of those brands had this really 50s inspired retro branding. Uh, and we thought, well, there's not really anything that has a sort of European influenced brand. Uh, and that really sort of fits with this Belgian beer idea that we really liked. So again, we started kicking ideas around. Then uh, I was brewing, I used to brew at night. I have three children. And so when we were starting the brewery, they were little, little. So I'd I'd bring them out. They'd help me mash in. Then I'd put the kids to bed. Then I'd come back and brew at night. Um, and so it was late on a Saturday night. I was thinking about, uh, you know, I got to go to church tomorrow. It's Reformation Sunday. Wasn't Martin Luther a monk? I'm brewing this Belgian beer. <laughs> so here we are researching. I'm on Wikipedia at like 2 o'clock in the morning reading about Martin Luther. So Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, uh, was studying to be an attorney. Uh, was nearly struck by lightning uh, in a massive th thunderstorm, uh, prayed, if, uh, if God, if you let me survive this thunderstorm, I'll join a monastery. So lives through the thunderstorm, joins the monastery, uh, realizes he doesn't really agree with the way the Roman church is administering not just religion, but also government, right? That's one and the same in the Middle Ages. The uh, church and state are, are virtually the same. Pope's kind of in charge of everything. And so uh, Luther doesn't really agree. So he starts writing down his issues, uh, which came to be known as the 95 Theses, brings them downtown, nails them to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, sort of sets in motion this um, massive socio-political religious change. And uh, when that happens, Luther is excommunicated. He goes into hiding. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition is trying to kill him. Uh, so he... Uh, amidst all of this comes under the protection of like a feudal lord like a you know a guy with a castle and a moat and serfs and all of that and uh this guy realizes that luther um they think now reading about symptoms that he uh that he showed that they think luther probably had crohn's but this guy's like man i don't know how to take care of this sick guy uh, but I know when I don't feel well, my wife takes care of me. So we need to marry this guy off, which of course is unheard of. This guy used to be a priest. Uh, now he's getting married. So uh, they pair him off with a nun. Uh, they break a nun out of a convent to marry Luther. And in the Middle Ages, we're now talking 1517, 1520. 
during the Middle Ages, it, it was the nuns who did the brewing, not the monks. And so Catherine uh, had been trained in the convent as a brewer. And so as a wedding gift, uh, the feudal lord that was protecting them gave them the monastery called the Black Cloister, which is where Luther first became a monk and, and wrote the 95 Theses. So they moved back into his uh, original, uh, uh, you know, whatever, his original monastery, turn it into their family home, and she brews beer there. So Catherine is effectively financing the Protestant Reformation out of a monastery where Luther started it by writing the 95 Theses. And so that monastery called the Black Cloister, or another word for cloister would be abbey, um, really began um, this, like I said, social, religious, political change um, but it was all funded out of a brewery. And so uh, we really liked the story. I remember texting John at like three o'clock in the morning, like I've got the name, we should call it the Black Cloister Brewing. And uh, the next morning, John texted me back and said, uh, drink three beers and try to say cloister. <laughs> um, and and so at that point, we're like, well, all right, yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, so we went with Abby partially because of this sort of Belgian implication of uh, Abbey Ales. We really like uh, doubles and triples and uh, our flagship beer is a Belgian blonde. And so that gives us the flexibility to be very European inspired by Belgian beers, but then also uh, the flexibility to do kind of whatever we want. The Belgians are known uh, for creativity uh, and not necessarily uh, dropping everything into a little square box um, but that's where the name comes from. Uh, it derives directly from Black Cloister and and Martin Luther. Very neat. Yeah, and and Brandon, I'm I'm go I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that's the first time you've had a feudal lord discussion on on the Nashville. <laughs> video. Um, so we're we're making. I, I I I will say that is the longest explanation for a name that yeah. I've heard so far. <laughs> like just like it's not. I'm anticipating. Well, I grew up in a neighborhood, and there there was this place. It was the Abbey. It was, it was a Black Doors. We call it the Black Abbey because it was cool. We've got beer there. Like, whoa, there was a history lesson. Yeah, yeah and, we, that uh, was awesome. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Adam. I, I, I'll, I'll let you hop in here in a second. But what's really neat is when when uh, you take a look at the names of the beer and, and the thought process behind it at Black Abbey, uh, you can tell not only just Carl, but the other, the other individuals involved in the brewery that amount of thought process goes into a lot of a lot of these things and and it, it really shows which is which is great so yeah isaiah says all the time that uh we like to come up with names that uh the references are so deep that it's almost impossible for anybody to ever get them um and that you know a lot of times that works to our detriment uh <laughs> I, I think that uh you know like our belgian double is called the special uh you know, people will come in and say, you guys have any specials? We'll say, no, but we got one special. And it's just, and we call it that because Belgian monastery beers, they oftentimes would have singles, doubles, triples, and they would be called uh, especial or special uh, as a very traditional Trappist name. And, you know, especial has been taken. So, uh, you know, we called that beer special and thinking, um, you know, that's a great name for this beer, not not really thinking through the application of um, what that's going to be like in the market. Uh, you know, I think we really fun just a random marketing idea for you, Carl. 
to do something like on the socials where you said, okay, you know how they have these like wrong answers only thing, but you could say you get the first case of this beer if you can accurately figure out what it's named for. I bet you get some <laughs> interesting get some interesting people submitting some interesting stories as to why you name something. It'd be really amazing if somebody actually nailed the real reason why you named a beer the certain way that it's named. Um, I agree. And I, of course I have a story for everything. They should have warned you about what it's like to talk to me. Um, <laughs> I never shut up. Uh, but uh, our IPA is called five points. And uh, the reason that we call five points IPA five points is not because of the geography in East Nashville. It's for the five points of Calvinism. And uh, John Calvin. And that would have been a good uh, one. You're, you're giving away the well, answer. Well, I did. But the reason that I'm, <laughs> I'm giving it away here is because when we first, uh, when you first submit the can label for approval, uh, there's an organization that goes through the TTB. You know, it's all posted for public record. And so they'll post out on Twitter like, oh, this brewery's got this new thing coming out. And so, uh, so they posted out the picture of uh, the five points label that has a tulip on it. And the reason it has a tulip is that's the mnemonic for how you remember what the five points of Calvinism are, right? It's total depravity, unlimited atonement, right? Like that's how you remember it. And so I thought to myself, this is going to be great. Like we're going to post this out and all the people in East Nashville are going to say, oh, they made a beer just for us. And it's an IPA because we're all the East Nashville, whatever. And the <laughs> very first response that we got was, oh, I guess we got a Calvinist brewery in Tennessee now. <laughs> right? And I was so disappointed because I thought I had this super deep joke and nobody was going to get it. But then you forget that, you know, Nashville's largest industry is religious publishing. Uh, <laughs> so there's like so many religious scholars here that, you know, everybody's like, oh, I get it. The tulip, five points. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, Carl, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and uh, and talk about beer. So, okay. um. So I, I know having the European influence and, and kind of specializing in Belgian Belgian beers, uh, you don't dabble often, not that you don't ever, but you don't dabble often in New England style IPAs. And Correct. New England style IPAs are maybe the most hotly uh, debated and contested beers, um, certainly among, among my friend circle. And um, I wanna know, First off, what your feelings on, on New England IPAs are, number one. And number two, um, after talking with a couple of brewer friends, uh, I have one brewing friend who, who swears by the style and thinks it's maybe the only style. And another who says the only brewers who, who brew New England style IPAs are those who aren't good enough to hide their impurities. And that it's a very kind of sloppy and uh, a sloppy style that you can cover up imperfections and so on. So. Uh, just what are your what are your thoughts on that? We, uh, for the most part, we don't dabble in it, and I think part of it has to do with, you know, the period of time when John and I came up as homebrewers. That was not a that style didn't exist. Uh, right. it, that was just you know, if beer was that cloudy, it was considered flawed, uh, <laughs> and and so I think. Uh, it's outside of my developmental area. Um, you know, we've got a New England style sort of beer and Ambrosia IPA that's in cans right now. But when you pour it into a glass, it doesn't look anything like bearded Irish home style. It's not 
Like it's going to be, it, while it may not be crystal clear, it's not going to be opaque. And so we haven't really gotten involved in that world, I would say, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because uh, it doesn't quite fit our brand identity. Um, we've said from the beginning that we want to make beers that are unique, but still approachable. And I think that, um, like your friends have sort of intimated, that can be a very divisive style, even though it is wildly popular. Um, and, you know, we like beers in that four to 6% ABV range is where a lot of our beers go. Right. Uh, and oftentimes those uh, hazy boys tend to be significantly stronger than that. Uh, yeah, they're, they're getting up there. Yeah, and our like our ambrosia is six point nine percent, so it you know that is very much uh, true to at least that portion of that style. Yeah. Um, so we don't do them because we're sort of this European influenced brewery, and so we don't tinker around with it very much. Uh, we run them on the pilot system and the small batch system from time to time, um, but I, I think the um, I remember when I was in middle school, I took music class and in the music class, it was like all the kids in the class and everybody got assigned some stupid instrument. And there was like one dude that played guitar. And so he got to play guitar and our, our teacher's name was Mr. Frame. And Mr. Frame uh, wanted us to play uh, Money for Nothing. All right. And uh, I remember him saying, I, you're you're playing that lick too clean like the opening riff of money for nothing he, i remember him getting on to the kid who was playing it saying you're it's too technical mark knopfler plays this so sloppy you have to play it sloppy in order to uh make it sound like the way knopfler plays it and i always thought that was really weird uh but it it sort of fits with the feel of the song and maybe that's just his style of playing, but I think that sort of applies to the New England IPA. You know, it doesn't matter if it's sloppy or not. That Money for Nothing sold a gajillion records and made <laughs> Mark Knopfler's career. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, I do think, just like any style, let's, I mean, take Pilsner, for example. You know, you can make a really good Pilsner or you can make a crappy Pilsner. Um, the same is true of that New England style. You can make really good New England style IPAs or you can make crappy ones. Uh, it, I, I remember reading in uh, one of Charlie Papazian's books that when you're going to have an additive to a beer, if you're going to add fruit, uh, if you're going to you know, add specific dry hops or whatnot, you, you want to be confident that your base beer is solid. And, uh, you know, you can't just say, all right, well, I got to, you know the base beer is flawed so let's just add raspberries to it and shove it out the door that that never works it's um but i think nashville is very very fortunate uh the nashville beer drinking community to have two really strong uh producers of that specific style both bearded iris and southern grist are getting national and worldwide attention uh right. for the work that they're doing within that uh within that genre within that style and um i i think nashville has done a really good job as far as the beer community is concerned of people staying in their lane uh yeah. you know we used i like i love half and 
I'm used to brew heffies at home all the time. And when we opened, we toyed around with the idea of opening with a heffy uh, as part of our lineup. But, you know, Yazoo's heffy was and still is, you know, very well regarded, highly decorated in competition uh, and uh, you know, sort of universally available. So why would we tee off against uh, somebody who's already doing something that's really unique and, and uh, an excellent example of that style? Uh, so we sort of identified what our lane was going to be and have, and have stayed there. Um, did that answer your question? I feel like yeah, I answered absolutely. it maybe three different ways. I mean, I mean, uh, I don't want you to call out a, a brewer for making great New England IPAs, but yeah, it's and it, it makes total sense when you look across the the, the scope in the Nashville beer scene. Um, the the breweries that have really identified themselves have that space that's carved out. Where you know you're you're looking at a lot of Belgian European style influences, and you have Bearded Iris up in you know up up a little north uh, doing some world class uh, uh, IPAs, and um, the the who benefits are the people living in Nashville, right? Because you can get you can get right. these fantastic uh, styles across. But all right, we're gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna shift gears once more time one more time here. And um, uh, Brandon, if this is all right with you, we're gonna do a little bit of a quick fire round. That way we can keep Carl's <laughs> answers to under to under uh, you know thirty minutes here. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I got a series of, of questions and. Answer them as quickly as you as you can. One one word's fine. Multiple ones, uh, as long as they're as long as you're short. Does that work for you, Carl? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, favorite beer to drink during the summer? Uh, Crossroads. Favorite beer to drink during the winter? Uh, Guinness. Your least favorite beer type? Sours. Your favorite brewery? in Nashville, not Black Abbey? Uh, gosh, that's a hard one. Blackstone. Mm -hmm. Your favorite brewery outside of Nashville? Uh, the brewery in California. I know a brewer is highly skilled when they can make this style of beer well. New England IPA. <laughs> um, the best beer city in the US outside of Nashville? Uh, Asheville, North Carolina. The best beer country outside of the U.S.? Uh, Germany. Uh, so for, for those of you who have not visited uh, the Black Abbey, uh, you should know that music plays a very large role in, in uh, for Carl and for the whole brewery. So your favorite music artist? Iron Maiden. Most overrated music artist of all time? Uh, Elvis Presley. The best live music venue in Nashville? Uh, the Ryman. Your favorite restaurant in Nashville, not the Waffle House. <laughs> so for those of you who pay attention to my uh, Instagram feed, you know I spend a lot of time at Waffle House. Um, <laughs> uh, gosh, that's a really hard question. Um, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> favorite restaurant? I don't know. Pass. <laughs> All right, and then uh, the last one in in a in a couple sentences. Make your pitch for Nashville's beer scene. Uh, Nashville's beer scene is incredibly diverse. It's still very young, 
which leads to a lot of innovation. So there's a lot of different uh, styles coming out of here. And Nashville's beer scene grew up just like the city itself in that everybody got real big real fast, which means in addition to being really diverse, you have a lot of really diverse stuff in package. So bottles and cans, uh, clap your hands. I like it. I like it. And I've got uh, I got one more question for you. Uh, what does what does the future hold for for the Black Abbey? Um, that's a good question. I think that um, I think breweries uh, tend to end up or are designed from the beginning to be in in one of two or three buckets. Uh, you've got your brew pub model, you know, where you've got a like Bosco's used to be, where you brew on site and it stays on site. It's a restaurant typically. Uh, then you've got uh, folks that are more like uh, Bearded Iris and Southern Grist who are selling a lot of their stuff in package through their uh, through the brewery, but also are sending beer out into distribution, but in very limited drops. Uh, and then you have breweries that are s structured more like Black Abbey, Jackalope, Blackstone, uh, and the like, where uh, we're pushing a lot of beer into uh, grocery. Um, and so I think that... Uh, the future for Black Abbey depends a lot on that channel. You know, we've been very uh, straightforward from the beginning that we're going to be a brewery that is going to attempt to get our beer into a lot of grocery channels. Um, you know, we do have a tap room, but we don't have a restaurant and I kind of wish we did. Um, but I, I wish that we had some more food than what we have, but I think what the future holds for Black Abbey hopefully is uh, continued expansion throughout the state in uh, in partnership with our wholesalers and, and retail customers. Yeah. And, and what, what would be the one thing that you would want people who don't know anything about Black Abbey to know about the brewery? Um, I think the, uh, the best thing about Black Abbey, with the exception of our staff people because i really think that we have an incredible group of people that work here that both make the beer package the beer and then sell the beer whether it's through the tap room or out in the trade um that i would just want people to take away the amount of care and thought that goes into not just the package design and the stupid beer names and the poems on the cans but uh, but also the liquid uh, we spend a lot of energy making sure that beer uh, that, that it tastes good and it tastes the same every time. Great. Brandon, any, uh, any follow-ups for you there? Maybe you want to dive deeper into a uh, feudal Lord or, or Lutheran history. <laughs> uh, you know what? I think, yeah, I think that we've done a great job here today, Adam, you've, um, uh, done a real, you, you have a future in, in being a, uh, a radio host or a podcast host. You did a great job interviewing Carl. One of the things I like to do towards the end of a show is I always give the guest the last word. So I like to open the table and just kind of say, hey, man, the, the floor is yours. You're speaking to the people of Nashville, the hospitality community, whatever you want to say. You got to just take as much time, as little time, whatever you want to say to the Nashville community. Go. Um, I would like to say two things. Uh, thank you for drinking our beer. I, I we have a, an amazing opportunity to make something unique uh, and and have 
been very gratefully included in the Nashville community and, and the things that make Nashville great, not just bars and restaurants, uh, but Nashville culturally. Uh, and we're very grateful for that. So thank you for drinking our beer. Uh, and for those of you that sell it, thank you for selling it. It's, it, it nothing sells itself. Uh, and I think that um, a lot of times it's easy to get disconnected from the fact that every time a faucet gets pulled, somebody somebody convinced somebody to have that faucet pulled, whether that came through our marketing department or whether it came through, sorry, my phone said low battery there for a second. Um, <laughs> it, it almost 100% of the time comes from the bartender or the server or uh, uh, the host or somebody saying, you know what, you ought to try this Black Abbey, it's pretty good. And uh, to, to those people that are making that sales pitch every day, those are the ones that I want to thank the most because we're nowhere without that. Very nice. Um, and I would also add on top of that, you know, if you're out there and you're choosing what kind of beer to drink, especially right now during a pandemic in these times, I've been standing on a rooftop screaming to people, buy local, spend money on local beer. And if you're choosing, if you're at Kroger and you have a choice of Bud Light or Coors Light or any of these national brands, Find the local brewery, support your local brewery. These are people who live in your community, hire people in your community, are spending the money that you spend in our community. And it just, it, it's, it's a great way to give back to people like Carl, who's donating his time for a great charity event like this Ask Chefs Anything event. And for you, Adam, for, for donating to the charity, this is just such a great thing. And uh, thank you both for doing this no today. Glad to do it. We're so excited to have you both. Um, it was weird for me to not speak. It's hard to, I'm like over here trying to not jump in and be like, this is his show. This is his show. This is his show. It was that I was wondering if I could do it today. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun watching it happen. So thank you both. Absolutely. I appreciate Glad it. Glad to be a part of it. Thanks for your time, Carl. No problem. Anytime. All right, guys.